Welcome back to Final Argument. Um, just a couple of things first. Thank you so much. Your support means everything. And I hope you'll consider becoming a member by going to raygreekar.com uh, for a one-time fee of $19.99. I'm going to put you deeper inside the case file, and you're going to be able to see documents from the investigation that was done into Ray Grecar's disappearance. They're so revealing. This is episode four, The Women in Ray Grecar's Life. Why is this important? What was so special about them? How does it all fit in to his disappearance? Let's go. The theory of Ray Grikar being off with another woman was actually hatched the night of April 15th, the night he went missing. It was at a hunting and fishing camp outside of Belfont, near the village of Milesburg. Belfont police officers were there, along with some of their buddies. This was the first weekend of fishing season in Pennsylvania. So they all got together and they sat outside near the banks of Spring Creek that night, where there was a lot of whiskey and beer flowing freely. One of those officers told me that another cop's cell phone rang, and he answered it. It was Patty Fornicola calling, and she said that Ray hadn't come home that night. What Patty didn't know is that they were all too drunk to grasp the seriousness of the situation. And instead, the officer that answered her call held his hand over the phone and told them all to shut up and stop laughing. He told her to call 911 and report it. The officer that told me this story said, looking back on it, he wished he had known that night that something wasn't right. After Patty hung up, they all had another good laugh about Ray being off with another woman and how he was going to catch hell when he came home. But do you think these cops really knew him? I mean, to say he was off with a woman? Belfont is a small town, and no DA as high profile as Ray Grickar was going to be able to keep that kind of reputation a secret for very long. And that's because there was no secret to keep. Ray Grickar had been married and divorced twice. His first marriage was to Barbara Gray, who was a professor at Penn State. That lasted 22 years, and early into their marriage, they adopted a baby and named her Laura. By the time he vanished in 2005, Laura was an adult. He supported her throughout her life in many ways, and even after she had become an emancipated adult, she and her father still had a joint checking account. What does that tell you? I wonder, do you think he trusted the world the way he trusted Lara? And you know, there was a steadfast rule at the courthouse that whatever Mr. Grickar was doing, if his daughter Lara called, he had to be located and told immediately so he could take her call. Failure to get Grickar to the phone when Lara was calling would mean a bit of a dressing down by him. 
Someone told me once he was in the middle of a capital murder case, in trial, in front of a judge and jury, and the bailiff walked over and slipped him a piece of paper. They said he looked down at it, calmly folded it, put it in his breast pocket of his suit, and then he asked the judge for a recess. And he walked out of the courtroom to take her call. He did that to judges? Was he hypervigilant because he worked on capital murder cases? I mean, she could be collateral damage. But emails between them didn't show Lara being all that needy. By 2005, she was holding her own in Washington State. You know that movie with Liam Neeson, Taken? That comes to mind. The relationship between Neeson, who's the father, and a former government operative, and his daughter, who gets kidnapped by sex traffickers? He was always available to her because he lived in a dangerous world, as Grickar did. His second marriage was to a woman named Emma Lang, who was an optician. They divorced after five years. Around the year 2000, he fell hard for a nurse, but that ended up going nowhere. It seems that he got out over his skis on that one. After one date, he asked her to marry him. She refused to see him again. He tried to rebound with a waitress from his favorite restaurant after that, but nothing ever took off there either. Then he started seeing a divorced woman from Belfont named Patty Fornicola, whose career with Center County Government started as a clerk. Then she became a victim advocate working in the courthouse. Ray Grickar's office was also in the courthouse. And apparently Center County Human Resources didn't seem to have any problems with that imbalance of power in the workplace, even after he moved into her house in 2002. But then again, this was before the Me Too movement. I studied their work emails. They were always professional. You would never have known these two were lovers. Even with their personal banter back and forth, it was always short and friendly, sometimes a little cheeky. He emailed her one day just before he went missing. He said that his dog misses her. And you know he wasn't talking about their dog, Honey. She sent him an email back that says, I know. I saw there was a really sweet little exchange I call the Peeps email. You know, those little marshmallow baby chicks called Peeps? Anyway, she emailed him and asked him if he wanted to order some Peeps. And he replies, sure, to store in my desk. Thanks. She sends him an email one day telling him he has 188 days left before he retires minus vacation time. And he replied, too many, but thank you very much. And then another short exchange is from him, telling her that the weather is perfect for them to have a drink at their favorite bar after work. And she accepts. If you think about it, they were conversing on county-issued computers. So they were being careful to keep things on a very professional basis. And then there were the emails about Ray's Mini Cooper. 
And here's where we get into those strange details again, okay? Patty would email Ray to ask him if she could have the key to the car so she could go somewhere. Things like, may I take the car this afternoon? May I use the car this Saturday? But here's the thing. The car was registered in Patty Fornicola's name. I mean, her initials were on the license plate. She owned her own car, but she also owned the Mini Cooper that Ray Grickard drove. So I began to wonder, as I studied these emails, why did she have to ask permission to use the Mini Cooper? Don't you find this odd? Let's put a pin in this, okay? You know, Patty and Ray had a lot in common. They were both divorced. They were around the same age. They never married, but they were happy together. As for the women in his life, she understood and supported his close relationship with his grown-up daughter, Laura. And she didn't seem to have a problem with Ray keeping in touch on a professional basis with a woman named Barbara Petito. He wrote a glowing three-page letter of recommendation for Barbara back in 1990 when Petito was trying to obtain a fellowship in law at Yale University. I've talked to friends who practice law and they said a three-page letter in this case was really going the extra mile. And he made a special point to the person at Yale, quote, no one who becomes a confidential source of information for her need fear that his or her identity will be revealed even indirectly, unquote. I bet he was a great source for her news reporting days. Now, I'm a little hazy on exactly how deep the relationship ever went, but I know this much. Ray Gricard trusted Barbara Petito. They had met in the 80s. She was doing news at a local television station, and he was married to his first wife, Barbara, at the time. But you know, Gricard kept the letter he wrote for her in his desk drawer for 15 years. There are also several emails between Petito and Grikar in the months leading up to his disappearance. He was trying to go to bat for her to get a media consulting job at one point. And Petito emailed him wishing him a happy birthday on October 10th, 2004. She jokes and says, he's going to be turning 70. He replies, very funny, I turned 59 yesterday. The big rollover on the odometer comes next year, but we celebrated it well the night before at Bentley's Restaurant in Woodstock, Vermont. Grickar continues, Our week there was perfect. Crystal clear weather and cool temps every day. Great inns, good food and drink, and beautiful foliage. Now we pay. We came home last night, and we came to work this morning. Sunday, he puts in parentheses at 7.30 a.m. to catch up. But it was well worth it. Take care. Sadly, that was the last birthday he ever celebrated. But does that sound to you like he was having any kind of an age crisis? Like he was depressed or thinking about taking his life? Does this sound like someone who's really down in the dumps and wants to quit? 
But that letter of recommendation he wrote for her back in 1990 was in his desk in a file which also held his divorce decree from Barbara Gray. And get this, the two Barbara files, as I call them, were like bookmarks for the autopsy and toxicology reports of his brother Roy's suicide when his brother jumped off a bridge in Ohio in 1996. Do you find that to be a strange trio of paperwork to have together in one file folder? A glowing letter of recommendation, a divorce decree, and an autopsy report for your brother? By 2005, Petito had come very far from her days in TV news. She was now the deputy press secretary for the state attorney general, who was Tom Corbett, and he ultimately became governor of Pennsylvania. Incidentally, that governorship landed Tom Corbett a seat on the board of trustees at Penn State University, while Jerry Sandusky had free reign over his victims. And Barbara Petito stayed with Corbett as a press secretary until he was voted out of office in 2015. After his disappearance, when the police searched his office and found the copy of the Petito letter, they wanted to know where she was on the night he was declared missing. They also learned that Barbara Petito's parents had a booth at a place called the Street of Shops in Lewisburg. This is an antique emporium. Now, Ray Gricar's car was found abandoned across the street from that place. And a witness told police later that he had seen Ray Gricar on the day he disappeared, walking around with a woman inside the street of shops, and that the woman fit Barbara Petito's description. So the police thought that Petito could fill in some blanks. The police phoned Barbara Petito and asked if she had been with Ray at the Street of Shops the day he went missing. But she told them that she was on Long Island at her niece's confirmation that weekend. I didn't find any evidence in the case file where the police independently verified Barbara's whereabouts. But with hindsight being 2020, and given everything I've told you so far, do you think the police were really pursuing the possibility Mr. Grikar had been murdered when they wanted to know where Ms. Petito was on the day he went missing? Yeah, I don't think they were thinking that Grikar had been killed at that point. Doesn't it make you wonder how the police would have gathered information if they hadn't bought into the idea of him being off with another woman? Over the course of my investigation, I spoke with witnesses who said they saw Ray Grikar on the day he went missing. Specifically, I talked with a man and woman who were at the Street of Shops in Lewisburg on April 15, 2005, the day he disappeared. They told me they realized it was Grikar they had seen once his picture was in the local paper after his disappearance. They described to me in detail the woman he was walking with and talking to. They told me she was wearing a dark colored dress and she also had a physical feature that they remembered 
because even though her hair was black, she had a big white shock of hair that framed one side of her face. I could see why that would stand out. Incidentally, I turned this information over to law enforcement when the couple told me about this because I found them to be very credible and I believed these people. Some months later, I spoke with the couple again as a way of following up. Yes, they had talked with the police. They told me they gave their description of the woman, and I asked if anyone had made a composite sketch based on their description, but nobody had, and I wondered why. They gave me a detailed description of what she looked like, and I know they told the same thing to the police. But why wasn't there a composite sketch done? It was reported that he had been seen with a blonde-haired woman the day he disappeared, but there was no composite sketch. There were other people that had reported seeing him with a woman two weeks before he disappeared in an antique shop in Blair County, a neighbor of Center County, where he was district attorney. Nobody ever did a sketch of that. Why is that? As I've told you, Ray Gricar had been seen with several unknown women in the weeks before he disappeared. Eyewitnesses gave descriptions of these women to the Belfont police, who were leading the investigation at the time. However, no composite sketches of any of these women were ever made. In fact, the case file has only two composite sketches. That's right. Inside the case file are two composite sketches of a man, one with him wearing glasses and one without. These sketches were not released to the public, but you can see them on my website at raygricar.com. And if you recognize this person, I hope you'll contact the Pennsylvania State Police. What I want to know is, if they made a sketch of this unknown man, why didn't they make composite sketches of the women who were seen with Ray Gricar? A law enforcement officer told me that the Belfont police tried on two separate occasions to have a composite sketch artist come in and produced sketches of these women, only to be told that there was no budget for this work. Does that seem right to you? If the Belfont police didn't have enough money to hire a sketch artist, then are we to assume that the two composite sketches in the case file were done by the Pennsylvania State Police? And if that's the case, why weren't the Pennsylvania State Police asked to make sketches of the women who were seen with Ray Gricar just prior to his disappearance? I mean, do you think any of this is adding up? I spoke with the owner of an antique shop in Blair County who said that two weeks before Ray Gricar went missing, he came into his shop with a woman and it was not Patty Fornicola. He knew this 
because he knew who Ray Gricar was. He told me he saw him get out of his Mini Cooper, and he saw the woman get out of the Mini Cooper as well. They walked into the antique shop, and they walked around for about a half an hour, looking at things and quietly talking. Who was that woman? The owner of the antique shop said he didn't recognize her, but he did describe her to me. She was a little taller than Mr. Grikar, but she wasn't wearing heels. She had dark hair that was a little longer than shoulder length. He said she had a high forehead and dark eyes. She was wearing a dress. She had on a lavender color sweater and she looked to be in her mid thirties. Who was this woman? I spoke with another witness who saw Ray Grikar with a woman in another antique shop in Clearfield County, that's north of Center County in Pennsylvania. Again, they're in an antique shop, they're walking around, they're not buying, but they're talking quietly. This time, they left in separate cars. My witness noticed the Mini Cooper that Grigar was driving, because at that time, there were so few of them on the road it was a very unusual looking car. So people noticed it. So I saw a pattern. He's at antique shops. He's seen with women in Blair County at an antique shop. He's seen with a woman in Clearfield County at an antique shop. The day he's missing, he's seen with a woman with black hair, with a white shock of hair that frames one side of her face at another antique shop in Union County. What else did these women have in common based on the eyewitness descriptions that were given to me? They all seem to be perhaps in their late 20s or early 30s. I never got the feeling that these women were lovers or girlfriends. And the other thing that I realized was they were all meeting outside of Center County. Now remember, in Center County, Ray Grikar was relatively well-known and in many places easily recognized. But outside of his county, he was just another average-looking guy. So I wondered, if you're going to meet somebody for some purpose and you don't really want people to know it's you, you're not going to meet in your own backyard, so to speak. You're gonna go outside of the area. But why were they together? Why was he seen with different women? And we know he had his laptop with him the day he disappeared in Lewisburg. And he was seen talking with a woman. When I began to connect the dots about what Mr. Grikar was doing and where he was, just prior to his disappearance. I asked the question, was it possible that Ray Grikar was having meetings and discussions with the mothers of some of the children who were involved in the Second Mile charity that was set up by Jerry Sandusky? I started looking for mothers of Second Mile children. 
I wanted to know if any of them had talked to Ray Grecar. Remember, in 1998, Grecar opened a case against Jerry Sandusky, and he closed it a few weeks later for lack of evidence. But do you really think he forgot about this? As I discussed in a previous episode, Grecar said to a colleague, quote, Jerry Sandusky is a goddamn pedophile, and I'm going to put him away if it's the last thing I do, unquote. Grecar says this to my source a year before he went missing. In 2009, a grand jury investigating the allegations of sexual child abuse by Jerry Sandusky was impaneled and heard testimony from multiple children with the support of their mothers. Now, let me ask you this. Do you think it's possible that in 2005, when Ray Grecar disappeared, he may have already found enough mothers of children who were willing to talk to him? And furthermore, was he closer to being able to impanel his own grand jury into Mr. Sandusky and perhaps other players? Given everything I've told you about what a methodical prosecutor Grecar was, doesn't it stand to reason that if he was building a case against Jerry Sandusky, he would need to find and talk to the mothers first? Because the children that Jerry Sandusky was raping were all minors. And since many of the children enrolled in the Second Mile organization, came from broken homes, and they were usually in the primary custody of their mothers, don't you think it's possible that Ray Grecar found and talked to several women about possible abuse of their children? The 2009 grand jury clearly showed that these women were out there. Did you know that over 100,000 children passed through the Second Mile organization? That's a lot of kids. That's a lot of mothers. That's a lot of women. Yes, Mr. Grecar was meeting with several women, but none of them ever came forward. Do you think it's because those women were scared? Are they still scared? Remember, the truth is out there. Now, you can say, he was probably having affairs. I don't think that adds up. I went through his credit card statements and bank account records. There are no unexplained charges for dinners or lunches. There are no unexplained charges for overnight stays. In fact, the case file where these documents are show that the police searched the registration lists from hotels, B&Bs, and inns from all around the region, from both before and after he disappeared. And they found no record of him staying at any of these places. The police even took it a step further and showed Grecar's picture to the proprietors of these inns and hotels in case he was using an assumed name but no one recognized him. I mean, the bottom line is, 
Greg Rickar wasn't out there having affairs. He wasn't shacking up in hotels, but he was most definitely talking to women. And all of those women never came forward. Why is that? What are they afraid of? And were they all second mile mothers? Or in the end, were there a couple of those women who were pretending to be second mile mothers? Before he disappeared, the powers that be knew what he was up to, and they knew he had to be stopped. What better way than to have a couple of women pose as second mile mothers? All of these women were seeing him outside of Center County, where he was really relatively unknown, if not completely unknown. And if he was meeting with second mile mothers, were they giving him the information that he needed so that he could take another run at Jerry Sandusky? Remember, in 1998, he didn't have enough evidence to prosecute him. But by April 15th, 2005, Grikar had been seen with different women outside of the county, always in antique shops. And I asked myself again, were they second mile mothers? And is it possible that one of these women may have said something to someone inadvertently and it got back to the wrong ears and to the people that had the motive and the means to make Mr. Grikar disappear. Was this why Patty Fornicola always had to ask permission to use the Mini Cooper, even though it was registered in her name and she owned the car? Was she asking permission because Ray Grikar needed that car for a specific reason? In other words, here's a possible scenario. Say you're Ray Grikar. You're building a case against this monster. You know this thing goes deeper than just one man. I mean, we all know that now. But let's just say you're quietly and methodically building a case against Jerry Sandusky. Now remember, in 1998, you only had one mother who came forward. But by 2005, you have already met with several second mile mothers and they are giving you information and you are recording this all on your county issued laptop computer if you're Ray Grikar. And you know that this could be a very dangerous thing to be doing if you're a second mile mother. You're probably scared of what might happen if you come forward. You go to the one person that you can trust, and that's Ray Grikar, the Center County DA. But he's not going to meet you at his offices in the Center County Courthouse. So meetings are set up outside of Center County, at antique shops. We know Grikar went to antique shops. He was a collector of old cameras and tin soldiers. It wouldn't be unusual for him to be seen at an antique shop. If by some chance someone did recognize him in another county. And just to make sure that you were talking to the Center County DA, 
Maybe Mr. Grikar said, look, I'm five foot ten, brown hair, I'm going to be wearing khaki pants, a blue jacket, and you'll know me because I'm driving a Mini Cooper. It's a car that looks like something that might have been put together if Queen Elizabeth and Ringo Starr decided to design an automobile. They would have come up with something that looked like the Mini Cooper. It's red and white. The license plate says PFO. So if you see that car with that license plate, you'll know it's me, the Center County DA, and you'll know it's safe to talk with me. Is it possible that one of them talked about it to someone? Or is it possible that one of these women were seen talking to the Center County District Attorney? And that's when the wheels were set into motion. Grikar is getting too close. According to a statement that Patty Fornicola gave to the police, she said the next day started as usual. Ray told her he was not going into work. Patty, however, left for work around 7.45 a.m. Ray called her around 11.30 that morning to say that he was on Route 192 and was not going to make it home in time to let Honey out. Patty told him that she would do it. He said, I love you, and she said, I love you too. That was the last time Patty and Ray spoke to each other. After letting Honey out and taking care of some personal business, Patty went back to work. At this point, she said in her statement to the police, quote, when I arrived home at five, I expected Ray to be there. He wasn't. So I went to the gym and thought he might be home by six. He wasn't. I then thought maybe he would be home by seven. He wasn't. I tried calling him on his cell phone, but it went directly to voicemail. I kept calling and leaving messages. Sometime after eight, I called my brother Tom and told him that I was getting worried. He said maybe Ray just needed to be alone for a while. I started to get really worried and finally decided around 11 p.m. to contact the police." Unquote. So while Patty was making her frantic 911 call to report that Ray had not come home, the cops and their friends, they went back to their booze and their mindless assumptions about him being off with another woman, when in fact, at that point, he was probably already dead. What's in store for Episode 5? Of final argument, the disappearance of District Attorney Ray Grikar. I'll be examining the circumstances around how someone vanishes without a trace, how someone is disappeared. What entity is capable of making someone vanish without a trace? And the only two I could come up with are the government or organized crime. And when you hear what I have to tell you, I think you're going to reach the same conclusion in Episode 5. But in the meantime, 
you have an assignment. I want you to go back and start with the opening statement. And I want you to listen to the first four episodes again. Because throughout those episodes, I have little Easter eggs, as they're called. And they're planted all over. It's the kind of thing where you have to hear it a couple of times before you start really picking up all of the clues that I am laying down as I make my case for why a grand jury investigation needs to be called. Trust me, I'm giving you all of the information that you will need to figure this out just the way I did. Thanks again for listening to this podcast and check us out at raygreekar.com where you can buy an exclusive membership. It helps pay the bills to put this on and a portion of all proceeds are donated to the National Center for Victims of Crime. Thanks again for listening and take care.